we are blessed this morning to have someone sharing the word with us that's not from Family Bible Church, but has been here before. I think, what, like two times, three times, something like that. Usually, for me, I don't get to be here whenever the Schrader family comes to share because I'm usually out of town, and that's why that they, they're like, hey, will you come speak? Um, they, they have been serving uh, as um, missionaries to Chad, Africa, and they have been learning all this time. They've been away from us, I believe, and uh, we are excited to hear a bit of what they've learned and uh, what God has been doing in their lives, um, but also what God is doing in the lives of his, of his church as a whole, you know, the great gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm super excited to have them with us. I pray that you will um, bless them, listen well, and uh, that Brian can come forward this morning and share the word with us. Good morning. It's a joy and a privilege to be able to uh, be back with you guys, to be able to share the word with you. And today is Valentine's Day, right? How cool is that? We get to celebrate the greatest love story in history. So as Pastor Bill said, my name is Brian. We've been in Chad, Africa for about the last two years, and we're back home on furlough now. We arrived back in the States in November, and uh, Lord willing, we're hoping to head back out probably sometime this summer or um, in the fall after our youngest daughter gets all of her medical tune-ups and surgeries taken care of, and then we are looking forward um, to heading back to Chad for another term. One of the things that I learned while being in Chad is just how insignificant I am compared to how glorious God is. He's the most glorious one in all of existence. And I may say that a lot today, and so I want you to know what I mean by that when I say that. When I say that God is the most glorious one in all of existence, I mean that there is nothing that even begins to match the greatness of our God. There's not an analogy that I could give you that would help you grasp how glorious God is. He is way bigger and way more awesome than our puny little minds can even begin to comprehend. When I say that God is the most glorious one in all of existence, I mean there aren't words in any language that exist that could begin to tell of the worth of Christ. He is the most glorious one in all of existence, and we don't have the foggiest of clues how astounding He is. But it's coming. The Bible says that right now we see in part, but soon the day's coming we're going to see in full. It says right now we see dimly like looking through a mirror, but the day's coming when we're going to see face to face. In His glory, this glory, it is coming to all nations. Habakkuk 2.14, it talks about, it says, and the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled. Not maybe, not hopefully, not if we pray really hard, not if we read our Bibles long enough, not if we give enough money, not if we go on enough mission trips, because it's what he is doing. The most glorious one in all of existence is filling the earth with his glory. And it's coming, and it's going to happen. When you read Revelation, it talks about, it says there's this sea of people. 
like more than you can count, gathered around the throne. It says they're from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and people, and they're worshiping the Lamb. And here's the crazy part. Because he's doing it through messed up people like you and me. Not because he needs us to. God doesn't need us to do anything. That's kind of what makes God God, because he doesn't need us. And so in, uh, in John, John 6, 14, it tells us that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father has, unless the Father who sent him first draws them. And so it's his work, it's his story, and it's all his glory, all of it. And it, this is the story, right? The love story. That the incomprehensibly glorious God, who for the sake of his name sent his one and only son to earth to bear all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our brokenness on a cross, slaughtering him and then raising him up again to reign victorious so that our joy could be complete in him and that we could live with him forever and ever and ever. Praise his name. And so our job, our role, what we bring to the table is our sin and our brokenness and our shame, and we lay it at the foot of the cross, and what he gives us in replace of that is mercy and grace and love and forgiveness and redemption and eternal joy and satisfaction in him. And then, as if that wasn't enough, and he turns to us and says, now I want you to be part of of the story. I want you to be part of what I am doing around the world, bringing my glory to all nations. I love Matt Chandler said it this way. He said it's like a crazy twist on the take your kid to work day, where God invites us into his plan. Right? You get it? We don't have take your kid to work day because somebody thought, hey, I got a great idea. I know how we can get some free labor and increase productivity at the office today. Let's have all our kids come to work with us and help us. Right? No. Nobody thought that. Because when your kids show up at work, what happens? They knock the fishbowl over, they got chocolate donut all over them, they're smearing it all over you, or worse, and that's like the first five minutes. That's not why we have that day. But their faces light up when they come to work with their mom or their dad. They get to work alongside you, being a part of what you're doing. Not because you need them there, but it's because it's for their joy to be there. And it's your joy as a parent to be able to work alongside of them. It's a beautiful picture, I think, of what it means to be complete in Christ and have us, have the Father delighting in us as his children. And so the proper, the only proper response that I can fathom is no stinking way. No way we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of extending the glory of God, the most glorious one in all of existence to all people. No way. That is crazy that our lives can count for that. 
And so we get to go, and we get to send, and we get to pray, and we get to give, and we get to sacrifice for the cosmic mission of Christ. Most glorious one in all of existence. How crazy is that? And so I want to tell you just a little bit about Chad this morning. Then I'm going to show you a brief video, and then we're just going to dive into the Word together this morning. Chad is a unique country. It's a Muslim country. There is a little bit of a Christian influence in the south, but in the area that we live, it is 99.9% Muslim. And in Chad, there are about 140 different ethno-linguistic people groups. That is a fancy way of saying just an individual group of people who have their own distinct language, their own distinct culture. And of those 140-some people groups, about half of them are completely unreached with the gospel. And so what that means is there's about 70 groups of people right now living in Chad with 0% Christians among them. No church, not one verse of scripture in their language. 70 groups of people. One group could be several hundred thousand people and no one speaks their heart language who could tell them about Christ. Now, yeah, a lot of these people, they do know several languages. Maybe you've heard this joke before because it's not like in America. What do you call somebody who speaks three languages? Trilingual, okay. What do you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call somebody who speaks one language? An American, right? So it's not like here. Over there, they speak a lot of languages. It's common for people to speak three, four, five, six, ten languages, some of these people. But there's a difference between having your second, your third, or your fourth language or your heart language, having Christ come to you in that language. Because here's the difference. When you learn another language, they know Arabic, French, and several other languages. They learn those languages in order to do business. It is their business language. It's not the language that their mother soothed them with as a child when they were baby and they were crying and hurt. It's not the language that a husband would tell his wife or his kids, I love you with. This is more than just a first language. It's their heart language. And there's no one who speaks the heart language languages for nearly 70 groups of these unreached people in Chad. No one who could tell them of the glory of Christ. And there's a reason for that. Chad is a hard place to live. There's a reason that nearly 2,000 years after Christ, in Chad, just one country on the planet, there still remains that many people who have never heard. So we live on the edge of the Sahara Desert, and it's really hot there. It is not unusual for temperatures to stay above 100 degrees, even at night. During the hot season, it gets up to about 130. There's relatively no electricity or running water. We don't have air conditioning. It's one of the poorest countries on the planet and one of the most corrupt as well. Not only that, there's a lot of um, disease there and illness there. In the two short years that we lived there, everybody in our family, apart from my wife, had malaria at least once. I got dengue fever as well, and then we all had a huge, you know, assortment of 
um, tummy parasites and worms. And I know what you're probably thinking right about now. Where do I sign up for that? And I was the same way. And actually, to be honest, yeah, many days over there, sometimes every day, I'd wake up. What in the world did we do? But it's in those moments that it helps me to remember, oh yeah, this is not my story. This is not about me. It is about the king of the universe and what he is doing. And so I'm excited to just share just a couple brief stories. I could talk all day about what the Lord is doing there, but I want to share just three short stories with you. But before I do that, I just want to address one question because the number one question we get asked when we come back is, how many people have come to faith? And so the answer for you from our end is none. Yeah, we've only been there for two years, but you got to know when you come to faith over in a Muslim country, it's not like coming to faith over here. It's a lot, lot different. Because when you come to faith over there, at a minimum, you lose everything. Right away, immediately. There's no warm-up period. There's no let's ease into this Christianity thing. You come to faith and you're cut off from society. You become dead to them, and sometimes literally. In a culture that is completely based on your family and on your social interactions and your position, they will have nothing to do with you. So the usual story is when someone comes to faith, you lose your job, you lose your home, you lose your family, and you run out of town. And that's if they don't kill you. So when Jesus said, count the cost, there is weight to those words for them. It's not like passing out a little tract and inviting them to come and prayer, pray a little prayer with you. But we don't lose heart because God is at work and he's doing stuff even when we can't see it. So let me tell you a couple stories the Lord is doing. Not long after we had arrived <clears throat> in Chad, uh, Becky was out visiting some of our neighbors and um, she came across this one uh, lady who had had a miscarriage just a few days ago and not everything had come out because of the or after the miscarriage and she was getting sick now and she was having pain and she had got an infection she was having fever she could barely stand up anymore she was dizzy all the time Becky recognized that she was pretty sick and so she asked her she said hey my husband's a doctor can he come look at you and so she said sure and so Becky brought me back to the house and I um, examined her like, man, this lady is sick. In America, what she would need is to go into the hospital, heavy doses of IV antibiotics. She would need a procedure done. We didn't have any of this. All we could do was throw some oral antibiotics at her, which was like a placebo. But Becky said, can I pray for you in the name of Jesus? And over there, I love what they call Jesus. They in Islam, they do know who Jesus is, but they think he's a prophet. They don't think he's the son of God. But their name for him is different than any other name. They call him Isa al-Masih, which means Jesus the Messiah. And so Becky said, can I pray for you in the name of Jesus the Messiah? And she said, sure. And so Becky prayed for her, and we came back and checked on her the next day and the next few days after that, and she was getting better. And a couple weeks later, she fully recovered. 
something that we didn't even expect to begin with. And then fast forward a few months later, <clears throat> Becky's out visiting again another neighbor. And now this lady's sick. And who were to show up were this lady who had the uterine infection after having a miscarriage. And she sees this lady who's sick, and she's a Muslim, and she's talking to her Muslim neighbor, and she says to her, have Becky pray for you in the name of Jesus the Messiah, because let me tell you what he did for me. And this is a Muslim testifying to another Muslim of the greatness and the power of Christ. On another occasion, actually, this was a much longer kind of story, but we had a kid who would come to our house every evening, or not every evening, but many evenings. He worked all day long. He was about 19, 20 years old. And he would, be, he would come because he wanted to read Scripture with us, and he wanted to discuss what the Bible said. But he's a Muslim. And so we nicknamed him Nicodemus, because if you remember from the Bible, Nicodemus was the guy who would come to Jesus late in the evening to talk about spiritual matters. And so we called him Nicodemus. He was actually the guy in the video who was doing all the soccer stuff. And so Nicodemus would come by, and mostly our, um, my teammate shared with him. A couple of, on a couple of occasions, I got to share with him. I walked through the passage of John with him, which talks about where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And uh, after we had been in country for about a year and a half, it was time for one of the Islamic greatest celebrations, their highest holiday that they have in Chad. And we don't have an equivalent for it here in America. It would be like adding every single holiday that we have all year and putting it into one. And this is the holiday for them. And so nothing is open. Everything is closed. Nobody works. You get together with your family. You get a, a goat or a sheep. You bring it home. You slaughter it. It's a huge family celebration. You buy all new clothes. And you hang out with your family and your neighbors. And so he shows up at, my, at, our, at our house that morning. I'm thinking, what in the world? Why are you not with your family? And then the other thing is he's not dressed up in all his fancy new clothes. And so immediately I'm thinking something is off right now. And so I greeted him in the way that you would greet somebody on, their, on this holiday. And he responds to me with a greeting that was not the holiday greeting. He greeted me with your normal everyday greeting. And so immediately I know that there is something off now. And so I grabbed him. I said, what is going on? How come you're not dressed up? How come you're not with your family? How come you're not greeting me the way you're supposed to greet me? And he said, I cannot continue to celebrate what I don't know is the truth any longer. That I'm not willing to say Jesus is the way, but I, I kind of think Islam is no longer the way. And so I can't continue to celebrate. And then, and then I asked him, I said, did you tell your father this? Because this is a paternal culture. And to tell his dad, I mean, that, that could be the end for him. And he said, yeah, I told him. Wow, the Lord is working even when we can't see it. And then one other story that I'll give you. This is with a different team that's working in Chad. Um, this team has been in Chad for about eight years working and ministering among um, the people in the town that they live in. Before them, there was another lady who was working in that same town among these same people, the Tama 
people. She was there for 12 years, and then this other team came in for eight. 20 years working among these people. Zero converts. 20 years, lives, labor spent among these people. And then one day, this guy shows up at our friend's door. He says, I got to tell you about a dream that I had last night. In this dream, there was a huge river in front of me. And on the other side of the river was Jesus and you talking to the missionary. He said, in the dream, Jesus was calling me to come to him, but I couldn't come because I couldn't get across the river. And I knew that in the dream, you were the one that could tell me how to cross. And so when he woke up that morning, he went straight to the missionary's house. He said, I need you to tell me how I can come and follow Jesus, first convert, after 20 years. And then he and his wife came to faith. And they got baptized. It was a beautiful thing. Praise God, he is at work. And anything that happens in Chad is because God is doing it. And anything that happens here is because God is doing it. And so that's the trumpet that I want to blow this morning, and that's the banner that I want to raise this morning. It is all about Jesus, and he is worthy of lives that are poured out for him. So if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you. We're going to look in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Before we do that, as you guys are opening, let me just pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that all things were created by you and for you. You are before all things, and in you all things are held together. So, Lord, we pray that you would come alive this morning through your word. I pray that you would speak to us. God, you know how incapable I am. So, Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Philippians 1.21, this is a verse that I am sure you have heard of before. You probably have it memorized. It's a beautiful and haunting verse all at the same time. And I think that it helps us connect a passion for Jesus with the mission of Jesus. And so Philippians 1.21, Paul says, To me, to live is Christ." And to die is gain. I think it's easy for us to read that verse, for me to live and completely miss the significance of it. When we say, to me to live is Christ, I'm afraid that maybe what we're actually saying is, to me to live is my version of Christ. Not necessarily the Jesus of the Bible. Remember what the Jesus of the Bible has said. We'll just give you a couple passages. Mark 10, 21. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Luke 14, 26 says, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10, 38, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Luke 14, 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This Jesus should make us a little uncomfortable. He's not a Sunday morning activity. He demands everything. To live is Christ means that everything else is lost. If you flip over a page in your Bible, Philippians 3, 7, and 8, you remember what Paul goes on to say. He said, whatever gain I had, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, what is more, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. To live is Christ. And I think that probably in theory, we're okay with that. We're okay saying, you know, God trumps our job. He's more significant than our calling or our purpose in life. He's greater than our desire for comfort or for safety. He's even more important than our family, than our spouse or our kids. We can probably all get on board with that, but I think just to say it in that manner is sugarcoating this verse. We have to feel the weight of what Paul is saying here because he's not saying those things are a close second. He's saying they're not even in the game anymore. Paul said it's all rubbish. In another translation, it says garbage. In another translation, it says dung. Everything. And remember what we just said was on the list. We could add safety and comfort. But then there are things like our kids, and our spouse. So how's that for a Valentine's Day message, right? That stings. Now his point is not to say that the significant people in your life, or that any people for that matter, are garbage. So don't hear that. And don't turn to your spouse on Valentine's Day and tell them, you know, gaze into their eyes, honey, you're garbage to me. And it's biblical, I learned it in church this morning. Don't do that. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not diminishing the value of people, so don't hear that. Remember what else the Bible says, for God so loved the world. Jesus has set his affections upon us. and We are loved and valued by the most glorious one in all of existence, and we could not possibly have more value than that. So his point is this. His point is not to diminish our worth, but it is to elevate Christ to his proper position. Because he wants us to see and he wants us, he wants to be able to create the space that is necessary to show the separation between Christ and everything else. And so he, wor- he uses words that are graphic and that are visceral so we understand what he's saying. To live is Christ means he is our all-surpassing worth. And everything else is as rubbish. But then we come to the other half of the verse, to die is gain. I think this is probably the part of the verse that we wish wasn't there. Because if the first part wasn't hard enough to swallow, now it's like on a whole new level. Because most of us are probably okay with You know, interpreting the verse in this way, you know, when I get really old, I've lived a good life. I retire. I got grandkids, you know. Yeah. When I die, that'll be great. Dying is gain. Absolutely. But that's not what Paul's saying. 
Not at all. He's not saying Jesus is a slightly better alternative to growing old and getting retired and playing golf all day and taking long naps. Paul is like, right now, this very second, to die is game. Because everything else is lost. It is bankrupt. Everything to die is gain right now. I don't care if you're getting married tomorrow. I don't care if you're about to have your firstborn child. I don't care if you're going to be inducted into the Guinness Book of World Records for the coolest person on the planet. It doesn't matter. To die is gain right now. Paul's saying, I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to be with Jesus more than anything right now. That's what I want. If you look a little bit further, Philippians 1, 24, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now again, understand what he's not saying. Paul isn't being morbid, and this isn't a suicidal letter. Because he goes on to say, he's like, you know what, I understand, I gotta stay here. He says, it's necessary for me to remain in the flesh. This isn't a death wish. This is a value statement. I want to be with Jesus right now more than anything. That's what I want. And so for him, it's a win-win. Because if I live, I live for Christ. And I am all in. Just like we talked about before. And at the same time, he understood death is gain. When it means that we're achieving our greatest goal. John Piper He said this, he said, death is a threat to the degree that it frustrates your main goals. Death is fearful to the degree that it threatens to rob you of what you treasure most. Paul treasured Christ most. And his goal was to magnify Christ. And he saw death not as a frustration of that goal, but as an occasion for its fulfillment. This year on January 8th, it marked the 60th anniversary of five men who were speared to death on the shores of a river in Ecuador. You may have heard of some of these men. Their names were Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Yonderin. Five men, all killed. They all left young wives behind. Some of them had young kids. Jim Elliott, had only been married for three years, and he had a 10-month-old daughter who would never know her father, except in pictures and through stories. And when we hear that, if you're like me, my gut says, that's tragedy. That is a tragedy. Five lives taken senselessly in a moment by, by people who don't know Christ from a savage Indian tribe, completely unreached. All these men wanted to do was share the truth and the love and the forgiveness of Christ. And they were killed for it before they got to say a word. That's a tragedy. And then I look at the Bible. I read Paul's words, and I think it says otherwise. Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He didn't say to live is Christ and to die is a tragedy. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That doesn't sound anything like a tragedy. Think about it. 
five families driven by one great vision spent in unheralded service to the forgotten and perishing for the glory of Jesus Christ. This is not a tragedy. It's glorious. This is what we talked about in the beginning. Are you kidding me? Our lives get to be a part of that. Our lives get to be part of the glory of God. I want in. What are you going to do to me? Right, Jim Elliot, what are you going to do to me? Spear me to death? You can't touch me. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Whatever happens, you can't touch me. Because if I live, I'm all in for Christ. And if I die, it's only gain. I get to go and be with Christ, the greatest goal of my life. Elizabeth Elliot, she said this. This is Jim's widow. After he was killed, she says, there is nothing worth living for unless it's worth dying for. Is the distinction between living for Christ and dying for him after all so great? Is not the second the logical conclusion of the first? Furthermore, to live for God is to die daily, as the Apostle Paul put it. It's to lose everything that we may gain Christ. It is in us laying down our lives that we find him. And Jim, before he was killed, he wrote in his journal, we found this after he was killed in his journal, some famous words. He said, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This is Jim's statement, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Because he's the most glorious one in all of existence. He's the hope of all hearts. He is the treasure that is worth joyfully losing everything for. And compared to him, everything else is rubbish. So I want to challenge you with just two things this morning. The first thing is this, where is Jesus on your value scale? Ask yourself this hard question. Is Christ truly your treasure? Is Christ truly what you want? Or are you trying to use Christ to get what you want? Like going to heaven or maybe getting a good spouse or a good job or kids or a lot of money. Secondly, is dying gain? Not in a freaky suicidal way, but in a Christ-exalting and magnifying way. Safety is overrated. Comfort is overrated. Even living becomes overrated. We think about the value of Christ and being with him. Is your heart crying out, I just want to be with Jesus more than anything right now. That's what I want. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most about the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. May Christ awaken in us joy in his all-surpassing worth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. God, it is challenging. Lord, and from my own heart, I say I'm not 
there yet. So God, we pray that you would awaken that in us. I pray that you would awaken that in me, that you would be our all-surpassing worth. God, that we could say to live is Christ and to die is gain because all we want is you and everything else is bankrupt compared to you. So Jesus, be our all, be our treasure, be our joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.